Did you realize what we just sang? The hymn uh, was Rejoice the Lord is King, and it was written by Charles Wesley. Um, It seems like as we go through this series over and over again, we keep coming back to hymns written by Charles Wesley. And uh, as I said before, though, that may be in part because he wrote uh, over 9,000 hymns in his lifetime. And um, so a lot of the ones that we sing are written by him. And I could have done 15 hymns by Charles Wesley in this series. Uh, I, I actually, there are actually 15 Charles Wesley hymns in our hymnal. And I, I thought about it for a couple of seconds um, when we did this. But the, the, this, the hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King, Charles Wesley wrote that hymn as a reminder to all Christians to be joyful because Jesus is the supreme ruler of all creation. Four times in that hymn, at the end of each verse, we sang a very important phrase that comes directly from God's word. Rejoice! Again, I say rejoice. Does anyone know where that comes from? Now, before any of you adults blurt out the answer, because I know some of you might know, do any of you children, any of you kids know where that phrase comes from? They're so busy with their bulletins. Hey, Michael, stop, stop coloring for a second. Look up here, guys. Do any of you know where that phrase comes from? Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Anybody know where that comes from in the Bible? Well, we just sang it in the song, but it comes from a verse in the Bible. Anybody know? I want to see if any of the kids know this one. Anybody? No? How about the adults? There we go. Philippians 4.4. 4. Good job, Grace. Did your mom tell you that or did you guess it? No? Okay. Okay, you just did it in Sunday school. Well, perfect. Okay. Philippians 4.4. 4. You can actually turn there if you want. We're going to go there in a minute. But Philippians 4.4 4, um, is where that phrase comes from. You know, so far in our series, 15 Hymns Every Christian Should Know, we have identified key themes in the life and ministry of Jesus that are exemplified in hymns that we sing, okay? All of them are revolving around the subject of hope. That's the focus, hope. Why don't you help me out with these this morning? I want to refresh your memory, so let's read them together. On June 1st, we learned and we focus on this truth. So read it with me. A promise, Lord, means a present hope. Let's read it again. We need to get this in our head. A promised Lord means a present hope. On June 8th, we learned this. A newborn Lord means an assured hope. A newborn Lord means an assured hope. June 15th, Father's Day, we learned this truth. A crucified Lord means a saving hope. Okay? And then on June 22nd, we learned this last week. A living Lord means a living hope. Hopefully you remember that when we said it enough last week that hopefully I drilled that into your heads a little bit. A living Lord means a living hope. But there's more. There's more. And so today, what I'd like to do is I would like to focus on this truth. A ruling Lord means a joyful hope. A ruling Lord means a joyful hope. I'd like for each of you to turn in your Bible to Philippians 4, 4 if you're not there already. And I want to consider what it means for us to do what we just sang in in that hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Philippians 
4 and verse 4. I think I have it here on the screen too. Maybe have one of the kids read it for me. Nikita, you want to read that nice and loud for us? How about we all read it together? Ready? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Philippians 4.4. 4. Just as an aside, and this isn't in my notes, since I'm not going to try to go very far down this little rabbit trail, but I do have to tell you, um, of all of the sermons in the series so far, as I've studied this verse and as I've meditated on this truth, I've found this so far to be the most difficult one. I've found this so far to be the most difficult one for me to wrap my mind around. I mean, last night, at 11 o'clock, I was laying in bed. And this was what was going through my mind. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? What does that look like? At 11 o'clock at night, on a Saturday night, when I'm laying in bed and I'm not asleep, what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? What does it look like when I'm up on a ladder and I'm trying to shingle or take off the shingles in the shed and trying to work on the shed out there yesterday in the sun and the heat? What does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? What does it look like when when, uh, we're trying to get the kids to bed and they're all tired and it's way past bedtime on Friday night and they're all crabby and they're all tired and we're crabby and tired and everybody's crabby. What does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? got to be honest with you. This is a tough one. It's a really tough one. And I'm hoping that by the time we're done this morning, you'll be the ones sitting there thinking, oh man, what does this look like in my life today? What's this going to look like tomorrow when I go back to work? What's this going to look like in put whatever that next thing, that next circumstance, whatever that, uh, whatever your day is going to be like? What is this going to look like in my life? That's the challenge, and I got it. Like I said, I think this has been the hardest one so far for me. Two times in this verse, Paul tells us to rejoice. It is a command. Do you get that? Rejoicing is a command. It's not a suggestion. We don't get the right. We don't get to say, you know what? I just don't really feel very joyful right now. So I'm not going to do this one. Or you know what? I'm too stressed. Or I'm upset by everything that's going on in my life. Surely the Lord will understand if I don't rejoice in Him today. Paul says we are commanded to rejoice. Now, we may not say it that way out loud, but I think that sometimes we use excuses like that to avoid doing what this verse is telling us. And I think sometimes we don't do this because we don't really know what it means. I mean, how many of you know this verse? How many of you knew this verse before I put it up here on the screen today? I mean, if I'd asked you and, you know, you thought about it, you probably could come up with what it said. How many of you have known this verse for a long time? Anybody like that? I mean, I'm 34 years old. I became a Christian uh, just before my fourth birthday. So I've been a Christian for over 30 years now. I've known this verse for a long time. I might even have known this verse before I was a Christian. I don't know. Probably heard it in the nursery in Sunday school when I was a little kid. Known this verse for a long time. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? I mean, this is the first question that I came up with as I was looking at this. We rejoice in the Lord. 
we're not, all we're going to touch on this phrase today in that verse, rejoice in the Lord. Forget about the rest of the verse. Rejoice in the Lord. That's it. Then we'll get to the rest of the later, okay? What does it mean to rejoice? That's what I want to know. That's my first question. What does it mean to rejoice? And the kids have notes to fill out, so I want to remind them to look this, to, to, to pay attention to this. But I looked up the word joy in Unger's Bible Dictionary. And by the way, as far as I know, it's no relation to Albert back there. Um, Merrill Unger wrote the dictionary. Um, but, but Unger's Bible Dictionary, I looked this up, and here's what he says. He gives three different ways we can define joy. He says, first of all, it's the delight of the mind arising from the consideration of a present or assured possession of a future good. It is delight of the mind rising from the knowledge that we either now possess or we will possess something good. Other words that could be used to describe this are gladness, exultation, transport, contentment, satisfaction, triumph, and cheerfulness. The second definition here that he gives of joy is self-approval, arising from the performance of any righteous action. In other words, joy that comes from doing what is right. He's also, we could also use terms such as peace or serenity of conscience or glory. But then he turns our attention to maybe a third definition. This one kind of, I think, is one that we really want to focus on. It's a spiritual fruit that is both permanent and indescribable. But boys and girls, you've got to pay attention because I think that's in your notes. I didn't keep a copy of yours up here with me this morning, but I think that might be in your notes. A permanent and indescribable spiritual fruit. The puppets talked about that this morning. Sally and Grandpa talked about that. A fruit of the Spirit is joy. What does that mean? It's indescribable. <laughs> it's hard to explain, really. It really is. I've been thinking about this all week. What does joy look like? What is joy? What is rejoicing? If we're not careful, we just define it as happiness. But we know that's not an adequate definition. We know that that fails, falls short. What is joy? What's rejoicing? What does it mean? Well, This may be the best we come up with at this point so far. Spiritual fruit focuses on God himself, his promises, and his works. It's permanent and indescribable. So what is joy? Well, that's what it means to rejoice. But but what does rejoicing look like? What does that actually look like for us? This was a thought I had. It's interesting, in the Old Testament... The word that's used for joy in the Old Testament, the word that's used most often, usually has its basis in words for leaping and spinning around. You want to demonstrate for us? No, kidding. Okay. Joy. Rejoicing in the Old Testament for the Jews in the Old Testament scriptures, it's the idea of, of leaping and spinning around. It's a full body expression of gladness. A full body expression of gladness. I think this is what, when, when, when the Bible describes David, and you may be familiar with the passage, when the Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all his might. I don't think it looked very much like dancing as we think of dancing today. It was leaping. And spinning around, his entire body expressing gladness 
That's what, that's what it was. Rejoicing. But rejoicing is more than just leaping around. Okay. Which is good, because some of us here would have a problem, right, Nancy? <laughs> leaping around. Peggy would probably have a similar problem with you, too. I don't think she'd be leaping around too much, okay? Jim Dempsey's not here, but he'd be right there with you, okay? None of you got. listen, it's not, it's not just this external thing. It's not just, oh, we jump around and we dance around and we move around and that's joy. No, there's more than that. It really means to delight in something. If we're going to be rejoicing in the Lord, it means to delight in the Lord. It has a lot to do with our hearts and with our minds. A lot more to do with that than it does with our bodies. Rejoicing has a lot more to do with our hearts and our minds than with any outward expression. But of course, what we delight in usually impacts how we act. I read a story this week I thought was interesting about a 92-year-old Christian woman who was legally blind. In spite of her limitations, she was always neatly dressed, with her hair carefully brushed and her makeup tastefully applied. Each morning she would greet the new day with eagerness. Her husband died after 70 years of marriage, and it became necessary for her to go to a nursing home so she could receive proper care. On the day of her move, a helpful neighbor drove her to the nursing home and guided her into the lobby. But her room wasn't ready. And so she sat there in the lobby waiting for it to be finished. It took several hours, and she sat there patiently waiting. Finally, an attendant came for her, and she smiled very sweetly as she maneuvered her walker to the elevator. The staff member described her room to her, including new curtains that had been hung on the windows. I love it, she declared. But, Mrs. Jones, you haven't even seen your room yet, the attendant replied. That doesn't have anything to do with it, she said. Happiness is something you choose, whether I like my room or not doesn't depend on how it's arranged. It's how I arrange my mind, she said. You see, rejoicing in the Lord is not about how our life is arranged. It's about how we arrange our mind. You see, it's this choice that we make to rejoice in the Lord. We need to choose to rejoice, to delight in the Lord. And we don't rejoice just for the sake of rejoicing. This verse tells us to rejoice in the Lord. What is rejoicing? Well, it's about delighting in. It's about arranging our mind in such a way that we focus our attention and we delight in our Lord. But that's exactly it. The second half of this phrase is, is about rejoicing in the Lord. You see, we, we don't just rejoice. We don't just walk around all day long singing or dancing or smiling for no reason. Okay. That would be weird. I mean, it might be weird anyways. I don't know. It just might be strange. It would be really strange if we're just walking around with a smile plastered on our face and somebody said, what are you smiling for? I don't know. I'm just smiling. Okay. It's creepy, isn't it? Yeah. You know? You go out in the parking lot and you start jumping and dancing and, you know, And somebody says, what are you doing that for? What are you dancing around for? I don't know. I'm just doing it. No. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what Scripture says. In fact, in Philippians 4.4, Paul is not telling us to do this for no reason. He's not telling us to do this with empty heads. 
We don't walk around with a smile plastered on our face while we're, while we're dying inside in the midst of grief and pain and suffering. And someone says, what are you smiling for? I don't know, but it's the right thing to do. It's <laughs> not it. It's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is telling us, I believe, Philippians 4, 4, is that we are to focus our attention specifically on Jesus as Lord. The title Lord is really just another way of, of, of saying master or king. John Reed, I came across this statement this week, I thought it was good. The Savior is Lord, the possessor and ruler of the kingdom of God. He is Lord. He is King, the possessor and ruler of God's kingdom. That's who we are to rejoice in. But like the previous one, rejoice in the Lord. What about rejoice? What is uh, what does it mean to rejoice and what does rejoicing look like? We have two questions here. The first one is what makes Jesus Lord? What is it that makes Jesus Lord? And I'm going to have some of the kids help me with this because I've got some verses I want to look at. Okay? And I know some of these kids are really good readers, so I'm going to have you help me read this, okay? And we're going to read some, some verses. You guys don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But the first one we're going to look at is Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. Michael, would you read this verse for us, please? Whoops, maybe that's verse 12. Either way. Read it for us, please. There's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That expression is very significant, very important. The angels were announcing to the shepherds that there was born one who was king. His Lord. He is the possessor of the kingdom. All right. What about Mark chapter 2 and verse 28? Nikita, would you read that one for us, please? You want to read? Jesus here is talking about himself. What, how does Jesus identify himself? Lord, Master, King of the Sabbath. Jesus identifies himself here as Lord. Oh, this is kind of a longer one. Let's see. Can you do it? Can you do it, Kelly? You want to try it? Pilot. Therefore. Good job. Here Jesus is standing on trial before Pilate, a human ruler. And Pilate says to him, Are you a king then? In Jesus' words, You rightly say, that I am a king. How do we know that Jesus is Lord? What makes Jesus Lord? Well, I mean, we saw at his birth, he was, he was declared to be Lord. He called himself Lord in teaching and in instructing his disciples. Standing before Pilate, he 
he took the title of king on himself. How do we know? And, and the kids have this in their notes. We ask this question, what makes Jesus Lord? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. God's word says Jesus is Lord. What makes Jesus Lord? God's word says it, that Jesus is Lord. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the possessor of the kingdom of God. There's a lot more that could be said, but I don't think I have to say a whole lot else. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He's the king. How do we know? God's word says so. No more deep and profound than that. Very simple. And so we ask that, what makes Jesus Lord? We recognize God's word teaches us that Jesus is the, the ruler, the master, the Lord, the king, the sovereign. Why would that be something to rejoice in? Why would we rejoice in the fact that Jesus is Lord? I was thinking about this. It's a very important question. Why should we rejoice that Jesus is Lord? So what if Jesus is king? So what if he's ruler and master and Lord? Well, there is a pretty big so what. There's a pretty big reason here that we should rejoice that Jesus is Lord. But it kind of comes with a catch, if you will. You see, it's not enough for Jesus to just be Lord. That's not enough. I mean, the scriptures tell us Jesus is Lord. Right? I mean, the shepherds were told that by the angels. Mary was told that. I didn't read that verse. We just I, I selected some to, to, to read. Mary was told that Jesus was Lord. The shepherds were told that. Jesus, on several occasions, referred to himself as Lord. He took that title on himself. There he was standing before Pilate and he confessed before Pilate that he was Lord, that he was king. And all those statements are true. All of that is true. But there still comes a responsibility to each one of us with respect to that true statement. The Bible says that Jesus is Lord, but it's not enough for Jesus to just be Lord. He has to be our Lord. It's not enough for Jesus to just be Lord. He has to be our Lord. My Lord. My Master. My King. Paul tells us in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord. But this is not rejoicing in some guy out there who's the king, who we don't know. Why would we rejoice in that? Why would we rejoice in a king or a person or someone whom we don't even know? No, no, no. He must be our Lord. We would rejoice. We would delight in one 
who is our king. What does that mean? I mean, boil it down to its essence. It means this very simply. That you and I must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We must admit that He truly is our Master and our Ruler. That He has complete and final say over every part of God's kingdom. I read that quote earlier. Jesus is, the Savior is Lord. He is the possessor and ruler of God's kingdom. Do you acknowledge that this morning? Will you admit, will you confess that Jesus Christ truly is the king who rules over God's kingdom? You realize if he rules over God's kingdom, that means he rules over all of the subjects. Because a king rules over subjects. You know, here in America, we don't, we don't always understand this real well because we don't have a king. I mean, we may have rulers from time to time who think that they have the authority of a king, but we don't have a king. It's hard for us to think of ourselves as subjects to a king. And yet as Christians, if we are Christians, we are subjects to the king. We submit ourselves to him. He rules over us. He has final say over every area and every aspect of our life. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to confess that. We have to admit that that is true. We have to humble ourselves before him and acknowledge that he and he alone is the rightful ruler of our life. The rightful king, the rightful owner. In the Bible we see this over and over and over again. I love the example of Thomas. You can maybe jot the reference down and put it in my notes. Uh, for the screen, but John 20, verse 28, Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, he always gets a bad rap because he was a skeptic like you and I are. No different than us, really. And yet Thomas, when he was face to face with Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, right? He puts his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands. He, he Jesus opens his side, you know, exposes his side and says, here's the hole in my side where they stabbed me with a spear. Thomas, put your hand in there. You can feel it. You want proof, Thomas? Here it is. My body, it's right here. And what does Thomas say? John 20, 28. He says, my Lord and my God. Dude, that was Thomas's confession. Jesus, you are God and you are my Lord. My King. He humbled himself before him. Acts 2 and verse 36. Peter preaching at the day of Pentecost. He concludes his message by declaring that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. It's interesting that he would use those two terms, Lord and Christ, because you know they mean almost the same thing. Lord and Christ, they mean king. They mean a ruler. Jesus is king. He is Lord. Acts 16.31, I mentioned this in Sunday school. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I love what Paul says to him. He says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you'll be saved. Literally, believe that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Christ, that He is King. you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the rightful king and owner of you, of your life, by virtue of what he has done. Here's a verse we need to look at. Grace, why don't you read this one for us? You can do this one. Philippians verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul says that there is coming a day when every person will confess that Jesus is Lord. And everyone will bow their knee to him as king. It's going to happen. The question really is, are you going to do it today? Are you willing to do it now before you're forced to do it? Jesus Christ, he is Lord, he is king. Oh, he died on a cross. Bloody, brutal. He suffered and died for us because of our sin. He was buried because he died. Literally, he wasn't just you know, hurt or wounded or tired. He died. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose again. But he didn't just rise again. He ascended into heaven where he currently sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is exalted. He is king. And we have a responsibility to confess him as Lord, to humble ourselves before him, to acknowledge his lordship. We're told in Philippians 4, whoops, I don't want to go there quite yet. We're told in Philippians 4, in verse 4, by Paul, rejoice in the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means to exult, to express gladness, triumph, contentment, satisfaction, peace, and glory in Jesus Christ who is Lord and King. It's His very authority and power which set Him apart from all others. And I think if I answer the question, what does rejoicing, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? The best way I can answer that question, it means to focus our heart and our mind on Him. To give Him our attention. As we know Him, as we look at Him, as we focus on Him, as we, as we meditate on who He is and what He has done, as we read it in the Scriptures, as we think about it, as we allow those truths to occupy our heart and mind, then we will be rejoicing in the Lord. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? As your king, have you humbled yourself before him and acknowledged he's Lord? That's an important question. But the other question that goes along with that is, do you delight in him? And I'm almost finished. I want you to listen very carefully. But there's something I thought of, and I just, I just can't get this off my mind this morning. 
Just, just stop and think for a second in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life. What do you really delight in? What is the thing to which you turn when you have the freedom to do anything you choose? You know, when you have that little bit of time to do with what you want to do, what is it you turn to? What is the thing that you delight in? A lot of things that we can delight in. A lot of things we can rejoice in. But I think if you spend some time thinking about that question, what do you really delight in? And then stop and think, am I really delighting in the Lord? I think you'll find it convicting. I know I do, and I have. Do you delight in Jesus Christ as Lord? Do you focus your thoughts on him? Do you rejoice in him? I'd like to close with the famous words of Dr. S.M. Lockridge from a message entitled, He's My King. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. David said the heavens declare the glory of God. And the fundament showeth his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He starves God and he dies. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. 
He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah. 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 That's my king. My king. Yeah. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yes. Yeah. He, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't him, teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. is the kingdom and the power and the glory the glory is all his thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and when you get through with all of the forever then amen <laughs>